0: Most gracious Father, we humbly beseech Thee for Thy holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purge it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen and confirm it. Where it is in want, provide for it. And where it is divided and rent asunder, we pray that You would heal the breaches we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are engaged in an ongoing study of the history of Anglicanism. We've skipped some years there because it's it's a long history and we really don't have the time to cover it all. Uh, But beginning last week, we arrived at that period in history which is of a great interest to many people. In fact, someone just as this class was beginning came up and told me that Tudor England was one of their... Favorite periods in all of history. And I said, Well, it is anything but a dull period in history, that is for sure. And we're going to continue that discussion today with the talk about Henry VIII and his formal break with the church in Rome. Now, we said that the situation with Henry VIII is actually far more complicated than we have been given credit for in the past. Uh, the assumption has always been that Henry was just unhappy with uh, his various wives, and as you may or may not know, he had six of wives altogether, and we'll talk a little bit about them, but six wives and was just unhappy with those wives, and so went through them like dish rags. And that is not necessarily the case. The situation was really far more complicated than that. Uh, we said that Henry had been married off to his brother's widow. Henry VII, king of England, had two sons, His eldest son was the Prince of Wales. His name was Arthur. I said he was the potential real King Arthur. Uh, and, And he was to be married off to a woman by the name of Catherine of Aragon. Aragon was a small kingdom in what is now Spain, but it would become a united kingdom in Spain eventually. And so it was important. And the King of England wanted to establish a political alliance with the King of Aragon. And so these two had their children married off. So Arthur Tudor gets married off to Catherine of Aragon, but Arthur Tudor dies. He dies quite young, as a matter of fact, what was in those days referred to as sweating sickness, and uh, all of a sudden this alliance is being threatened between Spain and England. And so Henry VII acts rather quickly, and he forces his younger son, who will become Henry VIII, into a marriage with his brother's widow. And that's exactly what happens. Now, when they first get married, Henry VIII, who will become Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, uh, they actually fall deeply in love with each other. Now, she is older than he is, but nevertheless, um, they have a lot of common interests. Uh, They have much in common with each other. This picture that you have of Henry VIII is this rather rotund king sitting on the throne who has gout and is eating a turkey leg. Well, that is not an altogether accurate picture of this man when he was young. Uh, He was very athletic, Uh, he was very bright, he was well-educated, he was well-spoken. He was a very impressive young man, and Catherine was taken with him, and he was taken with her. uh, Because she had been schooled on the continent, she was multilingual, She, she was a very impressive woman. But of course, Henry was under tremendous pressure when he became the king of England to produce an heir and to produce a spare. And in particular, he needed to produce a male Air. Now, as I pointed out to you before, this seems odd to us, we can't understand this, but you have to transport yourself back in time to this period in history, and one of the things that you realize is that nobody in those days really believed that a woman could be an effective ruler on any throne in Europe. The feeling was that her authority would be threatened internally, that is from the court itself, and externally by foreign powers. So this was a very male-dominated age. We're more liberated than that. I recognize that, but you have to understand that was the thinking of the day. And so the feeling was that Henry VIII had to produce an heir. Now, Catherine of Aragon does produce a child. She has a series of miscarriages, but she does produce a child. And the child she produces is a healthy baby girl. And her name is... Mary, we're going to hear more about Mary Tudor a little bit later, but she produces a daughter, and Henry is upset about this, he's not happy about this in the least, he's very concerned, and they continue to try to have children, but as I said, a lot of failed pregnancies, and Henry begins to wonder if, in fact, he's not under a curse, he's beginning to wonder if he had violated God's law by marrying his brother's widow. And so he seeks an annulment, and the annulment would have to come from the pope, who was Clement VII. And so he appeals to the pope. Now, under normal circumstances, we said the pope would have granted this. The pope understood the situation very well. He understood that kingdoms needed male heirs, and under normal circumstances, he would have granted the annulment. That would have meant that the marriage was basically null and void. It had never taken place, and that would have made it possible for Henry to marry somebody else. But we said that Catherine of Aragon, Henry's wife, had connections. And her connections had to do with that kingdom in Spain. Her nephew now ruled a united Spain, Aragon and Castile. And she appealed to her nephew. She said, look, if the king of England gets rid of me, it's going to sully the family name. Don't let it happen. And the king of Spain was a very powerful man. Charles V was a very powerful man. He was the Holy Roman Emperor. He was the one who provided military protection for the Papal see, And so Charles V put pressure on the Pope. He said, look, if you grant this annulment, I'm going to withdraw my support. And the Pope couldn't let that happen. So the Pope refused to grant the annulment. Well, Henry realized immediately what was happening. This was a foreign power, a potential threat to England, interfering in the working of his realm. And he could not allow that to happen. So as you see, it's it's far more complicated than the fact that Henry was just randy. It was much more than that. And so what happens? Well, what happens, of course, is that Henry is going to make a break. He's going to make a break with the church in Rome. He knows he's not going to get anywhere as long as Charles V is still around. And Charles V is actually younger than he is. So, potentially, Charles has the ability to live longer than Henry. So, he's got to take some sort of action. And what he does is he appeals to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, by this point, two of the principal advisors to the king have died, both of which would have been opposed to this idea of a divorce. And that is Cardinal Wolsey and Matthew Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And Parker is replaced by a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. You've heard his name before, and you're going to hear a lot more about him. But what Cranmer decides to do is to encourage the king to seek an annulment not from the magisterium of the church, but from the academy. And that is exactly what the king does. And a number of universities in England support the king's position. Now, we're going to come back to Thomas Cranmer and talk about why he was really motivated to do this. He was really not so much sympathetic to the king's plight as he was interested himself in making a break with Rome. And so eventually that is exactly what happens. A break will may be made with Rome in 1533 and official. What's going to happen is uh, the king is going to be declared head of the church. He's going to declare the marriage that he had had because he's now head of the church, his own marriage, he's going to annul it. And he's going to marry one of the women in court, a young woman by the name of Anne Boleyn. And that marriage is going to also produce an heir. Another healthy baby girl. And her name is Elizabeth. You're going to hear a lot more about her as well. Mary and Elizabeth, these two half-sisters. Now somebody says, well, how many wives did Henry actually have? Well, ultimately, he had six wives. Catherine of Aragon, whom he divorced or annulled the marriage. Incidentally, he did not put her to death. He actually had great affection for her. She was sent to live in the country, and he took care of her for the rest of her life. Anne Boleyn, who he has a falling out with as time goes by, she's not able to produce any male heirs. She has a series of miscarriages that was common in that day. He begins to wonder if she's not a witch. He begins to wonder if she's not conspiring against him. And if you know the story, eventually he's going to have Anne Boleyn beheaded for treachery. At which point he's going to marry his third wife. And her name is Jane Seymour. Let me just tell you this much. Being married to Henry VIII is like being a tail gunner in World War II. Your life expectancy is not all that great. So now he's married to Jane Seymour. She is a noble woman and she produces... An heir, a healthy baby boy. This time he's a boy, praise the Lord. He produces, she produces a male heir who will ultimately become Edward VI. But he's not as healthy as I've just suggested. He was actually a sickly boy, and we're going to see that that's going to play into this. But Jane Seymour does not live long after the birth. She dies of complications from the delivery process. At which point, he marries his fourth wife. And this is a woman by the name of Anne of Cleves. Now, he's recommended to Anne of Cleves, and she to him, on the recommendation of a man by the name of Thomas Cromwell. I don't know if any of you have seen the series Wolf Hall, but the main character in that is a man by the name of Thomas Cromwell. Now, this is not Oliver Cromwell. That's a distant relative, not the two men, This is Thomas Cromwell, and the important thing to remember about Thomas Cromwell is that Thomas Cromwell is a closet Protestant. So he is really pushing for this relationship with Anne of Cleves, who is a German princess, because what he really wants to do is cement the relationship of the Church of England with the Reformation that is taking place on the continent. So Anne of Cleves comes over here, the king's happy with the idea, another alliance. He doesn't realize what Cromwell is up to until Anne arrives, and she is hideous to look at. (laughs) And Henry has an eye for pretty young things, and she is neither of those things. That marriage does not last but a few months. But she's a princess, he can't behead her like he did with Anne Boleyn, so he simply divorces her. Now, who wants to be the next wife of Henry VIII? That's that's what I want to know. But eventually, he is going to marry a fifth wife. And that fifth wife is a woman by the name of Catherine Howard. Now, she is everything that Anne of Cleves was not. She is the pretty young thing. As a matter of fact, the king is 49 and she's 17. Now, you can imagine there are some differences between the two. There's differences in terms of maturity, experience, things that they had in common. Hey, let's face it, there's a difference in energy at this point. I mean, my goodness, I mean, how could the king keep up with this young woman? And as time goes by, rumors are going throughout the court that she is not so much interested in the king. She is interested in men her own age, and that's going to become problematic And the king finds out about these adulterous relationships, and of course, you know what's going to happen to her. She is going to lose her head as well. At which point, the king marries his sixth and final wife. And by this point, he's simply worn out. He's going to marry a woman by the name of Catherine Parr. The king will die, and Catherine Parr will survive, the only one to survive, Henry VIII. So, easy way to remember them as to what happened to them. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. So, those are the six wives of Henry VIII. So, it is a long and complicated situation. But, in 1533, he is married to Anne Boleyn. The marriage to Catherine has been annulled. And Parliament... Not the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, but Parliament takes action on behalf of the king. And these become known as the Parliamentary Acts of Succession and Supremacy. They are the year following the break with Rome, 1534, and there are a number of things that are very significant about them. First of all, they declare Henry and Catherine's marriage null and void. It's not a divorce, really. It's an annulment. What that means, technically, is that a marriage never really took place. There was some sort of impediment to the marriage. And so what they're saying is that the king is not really engaged in adultery at this point because you have to be married in order to commit adultery, and they're making the argument that the marriage was actually null and void. So that's the first thing. Second thing that that does is it legitimizes... Henry's second daughter, Elizabeth, by Anne Boleyn. Because if the king is committing adultery with Anne Boleyn, then that means that Elizabeth is a bastard child. And that means that she has no claim to the throne. So this act of supremacy and succession also makes Elizabeth a legitimate child of Henry VIII and a claimant to the throne of England third thing is it does is it officially declares Henry to be the supreme head of the church in England, which means for the first time in 900 years, England is once again a separate church. First time since the Synod of Whitby. In the year 664. Now, remember that we said that Christianity came to England or to Britain, what the Romans referred to it, in the 300s. So for over 300 years, really, really, England was separate from the Roman church until the Gregorian mission and the Synod of Whitby. Now they are separate again. They are a separate entity and have remained so to this day with the sovereign being Not the supreme head of the Church of England. That is going to be changed during the reign of Elizabeth. But the sovereign is still the supreme governor of the Church of England. So the sovereign is still the supreme governor of the Church of England. The queen is today. There you can see her with two former archbishops. The archbishop of Canterbury and the archbishop of York. Now as I said, this is a days of our lives made for TV saga. And it raises serious questions in the minds of people who are coming from other denominations. How in the world should we view a church like this? I want to suggest to you there are two ways to look at this. One, you can be cynical about it. And you could say it's a case of making up your own religion because no one can tell the king of England who he can sleep with. That's one way of looking at it. That, that's the cynical perspective. Or you can look at it in a more positive way. Light, And that is to simply recognize that God can work through even the wickedness and corruption of human beings to produce a great good. And as we're going to see, the course of Western culture is going to be changed as a result of that tiny island nation. And I would argue that democracy will be birthed ultimately in England. It will come to full flower here in America, but it will be birthed in England. And a large part of that is the result of the Protestant Reformation, which would never have taken place in England had the events that I've just described for you not taken place. So God can work through even the wickedness, the corruption, and the lust of the king of England to produce his good purposes. So what good did come out of Henry's break with Rome? Well, first of all, the Scriptures became more readily available than ever before. We'll talk about that when we get in a moment uh, to Miles Coverdale. But the Holy Scriptures, it's a great interest for the first time in the Scriptures themselves as opposed to the laws, the canons, and the rules of the Church. Uh, I said that with the collapse of the Eastern Empire and the arrival of the Renaissance, there was this influx of intellectuals from the east, from Constantinople into the western part of what had been the Roman Empire. And these people who were intellectuals from the east came to the west, and they were Greek-speaking people. And Greek, of course, was the language of the New Testament. Now, the Bible had been translated into English on a previous occasion. We talked about William Tyndale earlier. It was about 185 years before Martin Luther. And he did translate the Bible into English. Now, he got into a lot of trouble for that, as you know, but he did translate the Bible into English. But what is interesting is that he translated the Bible into English from Latin, from what was known as the Vulgate. That is St. Jerome's translation of the Greek. So it's several steps removed from the original language. But by the 16th century, because of the Renaissance, there was this interest in the actual languages of the Old Testament, Hebrew, and of the New Testament, Greek. And these scholars at Oxford and Cambridge are actually studying those languages. And they have a desire to publish the Bible, an immediate translation into English from the Greek. So for the first time, the Bible is going to start to become available, at least to the academy, and eventually, as we shall see, to the laity that had never been done before. That's also going to encourage people to learn how to read in a time when the vast majority of the common folk could not. Here's something else good that comes out of the break with Rome, and that is the rise of this man, Thomas Cranmer. Now, we know Thomas Cranmer because he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he was also the principal author of the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was a man who believed that a crisis was a terrible thing to waste. And he knew that there was a crisis in England because of the king not producing a male heir. He was not altogether sympathetic to Henry. But Cranmer was also a closet Protestant. He had been reading deeply from Martin Luther and Martin Bootser and other Protestant reformers. And he had long desired to make a break with the church in Rome because he was convinced that it had become corrupt. As I said, the vines and tendrils of tradition had really obscured the real teaching of the church and the pure message of the gospel. That faith once delivered unto the saints by the apostles. And so he really had a desire for reform to come to England, but he knew that was never going to happen as long as Henry was on the throne. Because Henry, as I said, even when he made the break with Rome, was still a Roman Catholic at his heart. He had even written that article that was a defense of the seven sacraments for which the Pope had given him the title defender of the faith. But what he sees in Henry's marital problems is an opportunity, at least a first step, in making that break and getting out from underneath the power and the authority of the papacy. So Thomas Cranmer and the Book of Common Prayer, which has been described as the greatest piece of English literature next to the King James Version of the Bible, came about as a result of Thomas Cranmer. Now we need to talk a little bit about the Reformation because I've already referred to the fact that Cromwell and Cranmer were both closet Protestants by this point. Very dangerous to be a Protestant in these days when Henry was on the throne. But nevertheless, this movement was sweeping through Europe. It had started out as a reform movement, but it had really become a revolution. And it was spreading like a wildfire. And no matter how hard the Pope tried to stamp it out, the only thing that he did was effectively spread it. So what was the Reformation really all about? Well, as most of you know, it officially started on October 31st, what we call Halloween today, All Hallows' Eve, but it actually happened on October 31st, 1517, when an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 complaints or theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, attacking the abuses and the corruption of the medieval church. Luther's story, we don't have time to go into all of it today, but Luther's story is a very interesting story. He was, as I said, an Augustinian monk, but he was a man who was riddled by absolute guilt. He, he just didn't never, never felt as though he'd ever been acceptable to God. And he tried everything he could. He went on pilgrimages, he went to Mass on a daily basis, he made his confession, but even when he came out of confession, he had some impure thought that would fill him with a sense of grief, and, and just a sense of unworthiness. And one night in desperation, there were many moments when he thought seriously about taking his own lives. But one moment in the evening, he was reading from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, the first chapter, and he read those words, the just shall live by faith. And Luther suddenly understood what that meant. It was like a window had been opened to him, shining in the light. The just just means those who are justified, those who are in a right relationship with God, shall become righteous or just. They shall live of how? By faith. By trust. And all of a sudden it was, you come into a right relationship with God, not by virtue of what you do, not by going to Mass, not by receiving the sacraments, not by going through acts of penance or contrition. You come into a right relationship with God by faith. And all of a sudden, Luther realized that was not the message that the church was teaching. It was the message of the apostle, but it was not the message of the heirs of the apostles. And he began to study more and more, and the more he studied, the more he peeled back the layers of the onion, the more concerns he had about the medieval church. And so, as I said, he nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. Now, his major complaint, it needs to be said, and this is very important. The church knew about Luther, even before he nailed those 95 theses to the door. And they basically ignored him. Why? Oh, he was an obscure academic. And you know, academics have some weird ideas about things, but you can't take them all too seriously. They don't live in the real world. They're ivory tower people. So don't pay any attention to the academics. If only we would heed those words today, perhaps we would be better off. But at any rate, that was the view in those days. That, that, that was the belief, that these people are sort of, you know, out there on the fringe. Don't worry about those folks. But one of the 95 theses attacked the practice of indulgences. The Pope was trying to build the greatest cathedral in all of Christendom, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and he was short on funds. And he came up with an ingenious stewardship program. You could buy a little piece of paper that had the papal seal on it. It was called a plenary indulgence. And for a certain sum of money, you could buy time off of purgatory. In fact, there was a Dominican monk by the name of John Tetzel who would go through the street singing a little ditty, "For every coin in coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs." Well, that was very disturbing. To Martin Luther. In fact, one day he was sitting in the confessional, as priests were required to do in those days. And he was listening to confessions, and a man came in to make his confession. He confessed his sins, and uh, Luther, as was the custom of the day, gave him so many acts of contrition or penance. He had to go out and say so many prayers to show that he was actually sorry for what he had done. You know, sort of a, a good faith gesture. And the man replied that he didn't need to do that. Now you understand, in those days, people didn't talk back to their priests. Those were the good old days. <laughs> but they didn't talk back to their priests in those days. And basically what this man said was that he didn't need to do any acts of contrition because he had just purchased a plenary indulgence. And that's when it dawned on Luther that what was happening here was the buying and selling of salvation. Now, when he complained about the selling of indulgences, that got the church's attention. Why? Because it hurt it where it hurt the most, in the pocketbook. And that sparked, as I said, a movement that really Luther intended to be a reform movement. Luther had no desire to lead the church. He wanted to reform the church. But what happened morphed from a reform movement into a revolution. And I want to suggest to you five hallmarks of that movement. These are very important. If you're taking notes, you want to make note of these because they're very important. The five hallmarks of the Reformation, theologically, are these. First, we call them the five solas, sola scriptura. One of the battle cries of the Protestant Reformation was scripture alone. That's what it means, scripture alone, sola scriptura. It means that scripture alone Not the Pope, not the College of Cardinals, not the Academy, but Scripture alone is the authority for the life of the church. Scripture alone. That was the first battle cry or hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. Here's the second one. Sola gratia. That we are saved by grace alone. That's what the word sola means, alone. Alone. Scripture alone is the authority for the life of the church, and we are saved by grace alone. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. In other words, you don't receive the grace of God by any means. You you can't earn it. You can't work for it. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. We are sinners in need of a Savior, but God loves us in spite of ourselves. And he saves us simply because it is his pleasure to do so. Sola gratia. Only by grace. Here's the third hallmark. Sola fide. And that grace is received by faith alone. Now why is that important? Because the medieval church would have said that you are saved by grace. The question was, what are the means of grace? Grace. And the church says you receive the grace of God by means of infusion. It's infused into a person's life by means of the sacraments. So if you want to receive the grace of God, you've got to go and you've got to make your confession. You've got to do your acts of contrition. You've got to attend mass. You've got to do all of these things. And if you do those things, you will be in a state of grace. A state of grace. Meet to receive the mercy of God. But Luther understood that was not the teaching of the Bible. Again, you call it grace, but it really works. So one of the third hallmarks of the Reformation was sola fide. You receive this grace by faith alone. God's grace is undeserved, unearned, and we receive that simply by trusting in the finished work of Christ. The only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is the sin from which we need to be redeemed. Sola Fide. Here's the fourth sola. Sola Christus. That faith must be placed in Christ alone. Not in the saints. You can't trust in the saints for your salvation. They were fallen men and women just like you and me. Now, they may be examples of moral living, but they have no power whatsoever to save anybody. You're saved by the grace of God alone, received by faith alone in Christ alone. Alone, And here's the final sola. We therefore live for the glory of God alone. Now these were the ideas that had taken root on the continent. And they had turned into a wildfire. And many people had latched on to these. And there were people in England like Cranmer, like Cromwell, and others who were reading these ideas and had become convinced of these ideas, but they couldn't do anything about these ideas because Henry was on the throne. So they were taking baby steps, as I said, to make the break with Rome in the hopes that one day a new king would sit on the throne. And when a new king sat on the throne, the Reformation might actually take place in England as it had been taking place in Germany. So that's the idea. That's the Reformation. Now here are some of the people, just two by name that we need to note, who were Protestants, who were reading Luther, and who become convinced of these great tenets, these great solas. And they were living in England, and they were doing their work quietly but effectively. One of them is this man, William Tyndale. We talked about the Wycliffe Bible translators. You've heard of Tyndale Publishing Company. It's named for this man, William Tyndale. Who was William Tyndale? What is his legacy? Well, he lived 1492 to 1536. He was a graduate of Oxford University where he received his M.A. He was ordained in 1515, so he was a priest, and he went to Cambridge University where he was a scholar. He was determined to translate the Bible into English. But he was going to do it not from the Vulgate, not from the Latin, but from Greek. And we're going to see he's going to be helped in this, but he's going to become the first man, along with his partner, Miles Coverdale, to actually translate the Bible into English from the original language. He's going to be opposed by the Bishop of London, and as a result, he's going to flee to Germany, where he's going to meet Martin Luther. And he's going to become completely committed to the Protestant Reformation. In 1525, he will publish a translation of the New Testament in English. And he made this promise to the Bishop of London who had opposed him. He said, if God spare my life, ere many years I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Now, there are a couple of features of Tyndale's translation that are significant, out of the original Greek as opposed to out of the Latin. One, the word congregation finds itself being used as opposed to church, because that language of church implied what? The Roman church. So he translates the word ecclesia instead of church as congregation, a gathering. He also translates the word, which had been translated, priest, as elder. Why does he do that? Because that word priest implies one who makes a sacrifice. The primary job of the priest was to offer the sacrifice of the Mass. And of course, there is no sacrifice for the sins of the world except the sacrifice of Christ, yes, and that sacrifice was what? Once offered. Have you ever heard these words? It was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, ablation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Full, perfect, sufficient. <laughs> he also changes the wording of acknowledge to confess. All right, we are to confess our sins, but we are to acknowledge them as well. You simply don't go in before the priest now no good deed goes unpunished Tyndale would eventually be arrested he would be garroted and he would be burned at the stake for what for translating the Bible into the language of the common people so when we talk about all the king of England and all the terrible things that he did could anything good come out of it well a number of good things came out of it What came out of it was the fact that there were people who were dedicated even unto death to make sure that the word of God would be in the hands of the people, and that's why you and I are here today. As they were tying him to the stake, his final words were these, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, he only finished part of the translation, as a matter of fact, of the New Testament. His work would later be carried on by this man. Miles Coverdale. Who was Miles Coverdale, 1488 to 1569? He was a former monk who left the monastery. He went to Cambridge, became educated as a translator, worked in the ancient languages. He was an expert in the Greek text. In 1528 to 1535, he traveled to the continent and he worked with Tyndale in the translation. In 1539, he publishes his own version, which he calls the Great Bible. And he dedicates the work to King Henry VIII. Henry didn't like it. <laughs> didn't like it so much that he had to flee. In fifteen fifty he fleed to England until Henry's death. Eventually, he would come back during the reign of Henry's successor and become the Bishop of Exeter from 1551 to 1553 when Mary will ascend the throne and order that he and others be put to death. What's Coverdale's legacy? Well, the Great Bible becomes the foundation for what many people consider to be the greatest piece of English literature. And that is the King James Version of the Bible, which some people still insist is God's own version of the Bible, But Coverdale's Great Bible will become the foundation for the King James Version of the Bible. So two of the greatest pieces of English literature come out of this time period. The Book of Common Prayer, we'll talk about that the next time, and the King James Version of the Bible. Now, as I said, Cranmer and others have been biding their time, waiting for Henry VIII to die off, so that somebody else could ascend the throne. Seems like Henry's going to go on forever. But he doesn't. Nobody does. And on January 28, 1547, Henry VIII went on to his great reward, whatever that is. And when he did, his only male heir ascended the throne. And that was the child of Henry VIII, And Jane Seymour, who will be titled Edward VI of England. King Edward VI. Now, Edward VI, when he ascended the throne, was nine years old. He's only a child, which means that he cannot rule in his own right. That's what this picture depicts. It's Henry on his deathbed pointing to this boy who's nine years old. You can see the Pope down here. It looks like he's dead down there at the bottom of the picture. But Edward's now going to ascend the throne of England. He cannot rule in his own right. So he's going to have a whole coterie of advisors who are going to be there to sort of guide him and direct him and raise him in the way that he should go. And one of those, his principal advisor is, guess who? Thomas Cranmer, who is this Protestant reformer, Archbishop of Canterbury. And he and a number of others are going to advise the young king in the way that he should go. And during the short reign, he only reigned for about six years, sweeping changes are going to come to England during the reign of Edward VI. First of all, in 1549, you'll get the first book of common prayer. For the first time, people were hearing the liturgy. Now, they've been participating in the liturgy all their lives. For the first time, they're going to hear the liturgy in their own words, in their own language. They're going to understand it. Most people did not speak Latin in those days. Only the scholars spoke Latin. The church said this was the language of angels. Well, it certainly wasn't the language of the common people, and they didn't understand what the angels were saying. For the first time, the liturgy... You know... I've said said this on Thursday in my Bible study on James. If you really listen to the words of the liturgy, read those words sometimes when we say that. Those are powerful words. Those are words that will get deep down into your bones, into your soul. They will transform you. These people had never heard those words. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. I never heard these words. So for the first time, the liturgy is in the language of the people. Now, it needs to be said that in 1549, the prayer book was pretty much the Roman Catholic Mass in English. There were really no changes in terms of theology, but at least they were hearing the words for the first time. But just a few years later in 1552, they are going to publish a second book of common prayer and it's going to be radically different from the first. 1552 prayer book has these changes in it. First of all, communion in both kinds for the laity. Up to this point, only the priest got the wine. You got the bread, but you didn't get the wine. Why? Why? Because this was believed to be the actual body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Now, if the priest or the person receiving happened to drop the bread on the ground, it could be picked up and consumed. But if you spilled the chalice of wine, which was the precious blood of Christ, it was gone forever. So laity never received the wine. That changes in 1552. In fact, until the Second Vatican Council, Roman Catholics didn't receive communion of both kinds. Until the 1960s. But in 1552, communion of both kinds. Real bread is used as opposed to wafers, because Jesus took bread and broke it. Not thin little wafers. Altars become holy tables. I don't refer to them as altars anymore. Why? Because an altar is a place where a sacrifice is made. And the argument of the reformers is that the ultimate sacrifice was made on Calvary long before this. Ritual gestures, tapping, crossing, kneeling, genuflecting, all of that sort of thing goes out as acts of superstition. Prayers for the dead are eliminated with all references to purgatory. The Bible taught that it is appointed man once to die, and then there's judgment, period. And the Reformers believed that. And so all references to prayers for the dead and references to purgatory are gone. Eucharistic vestments, all those elaborate brocade vestments that they wore, we still wear, well, they were out, eliminated, gone, because they implied some sort of royal priesthood. Members of the clergy for the first time are permitted to marry. What a thought. The Bible is declared to have a place of primacy in all matters of authority. And the black rubric is added. What is the black rubric? Rubrics are little instructions, normally in the margins of the liturgy, and they were normally written in red. In fact, when the priest celebrates communion from the Missal at the altar, the rubrics, the instructions are still written in red. But there was one rubric called the black rubric, which uh, was meant to explain why it was that we still kneel for communion, but we are not worshiping the communion elements. So instructions is not only what we're doing, but why we're doing it. The words of administration are changed. When the priest hands you the consecrated bread, he no longer says the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee because that implies that this is actually the body of Christ. Instead, the minister will say, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. So the words of administration are changed. And while some prayers for purgatory and the dead are omitted, a few prayers are added. Prayers against the Pope. Sweeping changes in 1552, so that England is looking much less like this, and like something very, very different and Protestant. Now, when we come back together again the next time, we're going to take a look at how the Reformation in England was a little bit different from the Reformation on the continent. And I want to say a word, just briefly, about that word Protestant. When you think of the word Protestant, you think of what? One who protests, right? You think of these people as protesting the abuse of the medieval church. But actually, that word Protestant comes from the Latin protestare. It means for the truth. And that's really the way the reformers looked at themselves. Not so much being against something as being for something. The truth of the gospel, which had been lost, but was now being recovered. Like a treasure that had been hidden in the field. You ever heard somebody talk about that? Like a pearl of great price that had been lost and had been found, and they were willing to sell everything they had, even their lives, To go out and purchase that great treasure. And make it available to successive generations. And that's what we'll talk about when we come back next week. The Reformation in England and how it differed from the Reformation on the continent. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are the God of history. We don't make history. We simply cling to the cloak of the Almighty as you pass by. And so, Father, we thank you for this history. It's convoluted. It's complicated. At times, it's unseemly. But you are the God who is sovereign, even over the affairs of men. And so you work, and you take our hearts and mold them and shape them and accomplish your purposes for your great glory. We believe that you did that at the time of the Reformation. We believe that you did that in England, and we thank you that we are here today people who have been able to recover the gospel that had been lost because of the sacrifices of previous generations. Make us grateful and make us worthy of this tradition. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.